Italy, a country known for its architecture, fashion, food, and transfer pricing scrutiny. The Italian tax agency has been busy in both legislative and legal matters, and the proof is in the pudding, or in this case, tiramisu. Hello, everyone. My name is Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. On today's episode, we're examining two Italian Supreme Court rulings over intercompany transactions and what M&Es need to know about navigating the Italian transfer pricing landscape moving forward. Spoiler alert. Joining us on today's show is Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and University of Ferrara Professor Marco Greggi. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. The United States is inching closer to public country-by-country tax reporting. The Disclosure of Tax Havens and Offshoring Act has passed in the House of Representatives. The next stop, the Senate. The act would require SEC-registered multinationals to publicize how much they actually paid in taxes along with other important financial data. We're talking profits, tangible assets, employee count, and taxes paid in subsidiaries outside of American soil. As it stands, this information is already provided to the IRS as part of the OECD framework. But if the act is passed, it will create a whole new level of transparency and open Pandora's box to public scrutiny. Give credit where credit is due. That's the moral of this transfer pricing legal case. The Finland Supreme Administrative Court rejected the Finnish tax authority's latest case on intercompany interest rates and its relationship to group credit rating. What's finished for better luck next time? Here's the breakdown. A. Oige, the parent company of A Group, provided loans to its Finnish subsidiary B. Oi. B. Oi made loans to its Russian affiliate, Zao C, and set the interest rate to include a margin at approximately 0.55%, during tax years 2009 to 2011. The tax administration felt that the loan margins were not high enough and should have been determined using Zhao C's individual credit rating as opposed to the group rating. Turns out the Supreme Administrative Court didn't side with the tax authority. It ruled that the financing counted as an intra-group service, and according to the cost-plus method, the interest level amount was correct. As for the credit, the court accepted Zowsi's use of the parent company's credit rating to lock in the resulting rate. So after all of that pushing and prodding from the taxpayer, it looks like this case was finished before it even got started. Finland isn't the only country holding court. In the U.S., all eyes are on Medtronic. The medical device manufacturer is in hot water yet again with the IRS over its allocation of profits during tax years 2005 to 2006. According to the IRS, Medtronic created the tax equivalent of the Bermuda Triangle between its U.S. parent company, a Puerto Rico manufacturer, and U.S. distributor to avoid close to $1.4 billion in taxes. So what's at the heart of this case? Transfer pricing methodology for intangible property. The IRS is backing the comparable profits method, and Medtronic is fighting for the comparable uncontrolled transactions method. 
While this legal battle may be new to some listeners, it's been going on since 2015. In 2016, the U.S. tax court decided that Medtronic had only $14 million in underpaid taxes, a decision that was overturned by the Eighth Circuit in 2018 and remanded the case back to the U.S. tax court. By now, if you're thinking this case has been flipped more times than a diner pancake, you're not wrong. As this iteration of the case is just getting started, one thing is clear. Taxation of multinationals is getting a lot of attention and scrutiny, and the verdict could impact future rulings and regulations. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with cross-border solutions, chief economist Mimi Song and University of Ferrara professor Marco Greggi to talk about Italy's mixed messages. I'm actually going to hand things off to Mimi for this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. So Marco, you're a professor at the University of Ferrara. What drew you to international tax law? Oh, well, Mimi, you know, essentially it was curiosity. You know, I'm, I'm from a country that is famous, besides for history, for the Byzantine tax administration and the high level of taxes. So I started wondering, well, maybe elsewhere, all around the world, the situation is different. <laughs> Let me have a look at that. Now I discovered that at the end of the day, the situation in other European countries and beyond is not that different from the Italian one in many ways. That's amazing. And you've been there for over 20 years now. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. I took my position here in 2001. So it's, yeah, 20 years. Good point. <laughs> what, what do you find most fulfilling about being a professor? Because not only have you been at this particular university for over 20 years, you've been a professor for, for many more years beyond that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's right. I'm, I'm not that old, but yeah, <laughs> I started my career in the University of Bologna. Bologna is a, it's a huge university for the Italian standards. And then I defended my PhD at Genoa, which is another university in Italy. But before that, I worked as a tax inspector for the Italian Revenue Service for three years. And then, of course, I, I met Ferrara, I fell in love with the city, and, and here I am. Amazing. Based on your experience and even, you know, starting with being a tax inspector into being a professor for numerous years, 
Tell us a little bit about the development or transformation of the international tax landscape over the course of your career. Well, maybe here in Italy, honestly, when I started and, you know, reading about international taxation, well, that was considered as kind of, I don't know, exotic field of research in my country. When I talk to my colleagues and friends, so what are you at? I'm saying, well, I'm doing international taxation. What is that? So like 20 more years ago, people in Italy had literally no idea about what international taxation was. Wow. Well, well, yeah, the academic environment here in Italy is very conservative in many (laughs) ways. But of course, today, the situation is completely changed. Now, international taxation is a topic which is chosen by many, many Italian students. And it's very important in the education, both in the faculties of law and economics. Amazing. And, you know, over the past year, we've all been experiencing the pandemic environment. I know that when I was looking at the news, clearly the pandemic impacts in Italy were a bit concerning at times. And what was it like from your experience? Well, you have experienced in the U.S. We Mm -hmm. are experiencing still in Italy. For us, it's not entirely over the whole thing. Well, for us, you know, it was a shock, perhaps even more than than for you. And the reason is that, Mimi, you know, we are essentially, Italians are essentially Mediterraneans. And as Mediterraneans, we love, really love being in touch with people, shaking hands, hugs, friends, really live in touch and contact with others. So knowing that we were supposed to stay at home, don't walk around, say hello to people from two meters, (laughs) two yards of distance, for us was quite a shock. Stay away from the other at least two meters. It's it's too far away. Our (laughs) colleagues from Finland, from Finland in Europe, they say two meters, that's too close. (laughs) So, So it depends on the point of view, but for us was really quite a shock. Oh, yeah, I can I can only imagine. I remember seeing the first set of human beings after being at home for a while. And it was so awkward. Like, yeah, do we yeah. touch? Do we not? Can we hug? Yeah, that's one of our, you know, feature, I would say, of a challenge, just hugging people. We, we can't but doing that. So for us, it's quite challenging. Right. And is there anything that you think in particular you will not forget about this time of your life, whether good or bad? Bad things. Yeah. The idea that could not, you know, talk to my students, see them in the classroom. We really love being in touch, but not only with friends. When I teach, when I lecture at my university, I like to walk around in, in the classroom, ask questions, look at the people in the face, in the eyes. The feedback from the students is, is very important. It's tremendously important. And technology, well, can help you a lot, but not enough in this right. aspect. That's bad for good things. Well, I stayed at home, so more time, extra time with my kids here. I have two children, so a little more time with them. And I, well, rediscovered the pleasure of staying at home in some way, in some way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us have definitely the time with family is invaluable, right? Yeah, indeed. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about our major topic today. I mean, it's the Italian transfer pricing regime or landscape right now. And we know that Italy went through a major transfer pricing overhaul last year in November when it issued new regulations 
on transfer pricing documentation, right? So what do these new regulations include and how do they better align with OECD guidelines and principles? Well, that's right. Well, Italy has, as a matter of fact, implemented Action 13 of the BAPS project in in the country. Italy has been and still is well known for being very quick in adapting and implementing all the recommendation and the guidelines and you know instructions that are given from the OECD in Paris. You you may remember that one of the chief managers of the BEPS project, Dr. Russo, is actually Italian. So we really had a kind of privileged connection with, with that. And essentially in the implementation of Action 13, we, as you know, we extended some compliance duties to a broader number of companies. The country file, you know, the master file documentation has been extended as well. But but together at the same time, we have introduced some sort of simplification for small and medium-sized enterprise. And in this respect, we have uh, some fast-tracking procedures for being compliant. We had special desks made available for them to be in touch with the tax administration and something like that, essentially. And I think that there are some electronic signing requirements and supplementary returns. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Italy has, well, we moved to the digital platform some five years ago. And, and if when you are in Italy, for instance, for even for ordinary people like me, your tax return, all the tax compliance now is entirely digital. I have right now, Mimi, you know, my, my tax return is somewhere on the revenue service server. I can download it and all the connection, all the relations, the questions, the queries are all of them are digital. And oh, wow. for multinational and Companies. They started even earlier in granting and I'd say in allowing this kind of communication so they can and they are now in a position to deliver all the documentation in digital format and with a digital signature on the server of the revenue service. And most of the contact, even before, maybe even before pandemic, were all internet-based in many in many respects. So if we have to look at the whole scenario in terms of compliance, I would tell you that after 2020, compliance duties have <laughs> in many ways escalated. So you have to deliver more documentation, a lot of papers. You have to bring justification in advance on why on earth you are charging that price on your subsidiaries and so on and so forth. But Simultaneously, on the other side, the Italian tax administration has really strived to make the whole thing, the whole machinery, as smooth as possible in terms of digital platform, IT infrastructure, and and so on. Well, at least Italy is not alone in its new requirement standards and enhanced standards of compliance, right? Additional forms. So they're definitely not alone from that regard. But... They also have new documentation requirements for low-value-added services. Is this intended to simplify or create more complexity? Yeah, we have a kind of markup on, on paper. It should be simplified. We have this, kind of, but it depends on the point of view, like maybe that's right. Many things, but yeah. Long story short, they have introduced a kind of markup of five percent for companies which are operating in low-value business sector. This kind of markup, this five percent extra that you are supposed to charge, is intended to make the whole system even more simple for that kind of business 
on the paper, in theory. In theory. And then in the practice, maybe, you know, all this new regulation have been implemented in 2020. So they start working right now. And I fear it is still too early to make a preliminary assessment as on whether the, the tax offices in Italy are really making life simple for the business as they are supposed to, if you read the law or if you read the regulation. Right. I mean, I, I think that's interesting because it is a sort of safe harbor for yeah. simplified services. Indeed. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Kind of safe but harbor. Would it be acceptable for both inbound and outbound services, right? It should be symmetric. Yes, of course. Yeah. No, no yeah. asymmetry. That would be a discrimination otherwise. Yes, yes. Well, here's the other question about Italy's documentation framework. We've always known that Italy has been somewhat formalistic especially when you think about penalty protection and ensuring that the documentation meets all those requirements. Has that changed? Unfortunately not. We are paying a very high price to our civil law tradition. We are really, what well, we are, our judiciary, the tax administration and, and the people in taxes are really focused on form rather on, on substance, essentially. So if you fail to report, if you miss report, if you qualify transaction, a contract, a business reorganization in a way which does not mirror the civil code regulations or the tax regulation, well, then maybe you have a situation here because, you know, fines are quite high in the country. And it's very frequent to have also criminal fines charged on you if the violation is, is a serious Well, so, I mean, now we're also talking about an environment where the pandemic has impacted multinational businesses, businesses operating in Italy, which clearly has had an impact to Italy's tax revenue, right? And there's the collection of tax revenue. So what does this current tax landscape look like right now? Well, it's indeed complicated, maybe, because, you know, the pandemic is not over and mm -hmm. the side effect of pandemic in Italy, not too. What is the problem here? Yes, indeed, the revenue has collapsed in 2020 for several reasons. And of course, COVID-19 is perhaps the first and the most important in this respect. How is our tax administration reacting so far? Well, the first decision that they took was to, well, to suspend the collection of unpaid taxes in order to, to give the business, both domestic and international, working in the country, some sort of leeway in many respects. And they are supposed to behave like this till this summer, more or less. After the summer, the inspection activity by the tax administration and the collection of tax activity by the tax administration will begin again. And there is indeed a lot of uncertainty about that in terms of how the economic sector of the country shall react. I'm a lawyer, you know, I'm not an economist, but most of the economists here in Italy fear that the most serious wave has yet to come in this country in terms of business that will wind up in terms of workplaces that are, will be lost in the next month. So there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot, a lot about that. Well, and have they responded, has the Italian tax authority responded to the OECD's initiatives on pillar one and pillar two related to the digital economy? In principle, yes. 
Italy is engaged in both the pillars of the OECD. If you're asking me an answer from an intellectual or academic perspective, I would say, I would answer, yes, we are in the game. Yes, we are playing. Yes, we are committed to both of the projects. But if you ask me an answer from the practitioner point of view, I would answer that the Italian tax administration mm -hmm. has always dealt with a digital economy in an old-fashioned way. I mean, they always audited multinational business in the digital economy using the classical concept of permanent establishment, first of all, and transfer pricing. Yes. Like we had, they started like three years ago with Apple, then we went to Google, Amazon, and, and many other. They just said, well, you know, there is a hidden permanent establishment here in Italy. You, you never reported it to us, and now you're supposed to pay taxes. Without getting into sophisticated analysis, they just went to the multinational law of the case and they say, there is a PE, you do not qualify for Article 5 of the OECD model or of the treaty, and that is the point. And the point from a practitioner point of view, Mimi, you know that if you are a manager of a multinational company and you are active on the Italian market, and if you fail to report or to disclose that you have a permanent establishment over here, because maybe you never thought you had, but you have, that, that is a crime. I mean, you, you risk to go to prison because wow. you fail to report your taxes you are supposed to pay here, and that, that's it. And this is also the reason why the Italian tax administration was, in the past years, so much effective in auditing like Netflix, in auditing Amazon and Apple as well. Because when they started their tax investigation, they made crystal clear from the day one that that was a tax investigation and a criminal investigation, period. And, you know, under such a pressure, most of the managers, most of the top-ranking people and those multinational, well, they prefer to find an agreement, a plea bargaining or something. Well, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but just to, 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 to finish the, the possible litigation as soon as possible. So this is something amazing. Yeah, this is something that Americans should not underestimate when they do right. business in this country. The, the border between tax law on one side and, and criminal law on the other is very, very thin. It's, it's so much easier to, to fall into a criminal investigation from a tax perspective. I think much easier than everywhere in the world. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. We've always known that Italy has had a very challenging tax landscape, but clearly they're moving full steam ahead with even transfer pricing specific compliance. 
as clearly evidenced by its recent revamp of the documentation requirements last year. And then these new measures, we know they align with the OECD standards, which, which helps to create an added layer of consistency for multinationals. But don't forget, we all can't forget about the still formalistic approach of the Italian tax authorities. And of course, with Italy being severely impacted by COVID-19 and, and continuously evaluating how the country is going to shore up its lost tax revenues, we can only anticipate that the Italian tax authority could be looking to make up for losses. But now that we have this general overview of Italy's tax landscape, let's go to the courtroom, right? This is your area, I think, of expertise here. And earlier this year, the Italian Supreme Court made two rulings on cases that specifically dealt with intercompany transactions. The first outcome was decided in decision number 1232, which was in January of 2021. Can you provide a little background on this case? Who was the multinational under evaluation? What is the transfer pricing issue at the court? Yeah, this is very interesting case, Mimi. You're 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 right. This this is the VBAC case, V-I-B-A-C, an Italian multinational with several subsidiaries all around the world, including Canada and including the United States, of course. This is a very good, very well performing company. They do tapes and they do packaging and you know stuff like that. And they have a very good uh, trademark, apparently. They have a know-how, so a lot of intangibles. And and the problem here came out when they licensed the the trademark and other know-how to the subsidiaries in Canada and in the United States, of course. The situation came when, uh, well, the Italian Tax Administration audited VBIC here, and they found that the price, the royalties actually, the royalties paid to the Italian holding company for the right to use the trademark and know-how was considered too low for the Italian tax administration. The methodology that they used is the resale price method in this very specific case. And of course, the, 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 the multinational tried to defend the position, arguing that VBEC was not in the position to charge high royalties on the American subsidiaries. Because they said, and they gave evidence that the Canadian and the American market are very competitive, very competitive, Uh, prices are quite low for this kind of products, and they couldn't charge the subsidiary with a very high royalty because that would have sent the subsidiary out of the market, straightforward. That's it, end of the game. But apparently, this argument was not accepted by the tax administration first and by the court later on, because they said, well, this reason, I mean, the, the, the market reason is acceptable, but only in a very short time frame. Apparently, you know, this, this is not my case. I'm, I'm just reading the references from the text of the court. Sure. But apparently, the, the, the VBIC was used to charge very low royalties for a, quite a long time. So the Italian Supreme Court said, well, uh, it, it is acceptable, it's tolerable to charge a low amount for two, three years, they said. But if this business strategy is too long in time, well, that that cannot be accepted anymore. 
Nini, this is a long story made short, but there is, in my view, another very interesting element in this case. The lawyers of the VBIC said, in a desperate attempt to defend the, the client, they said, well, of course, but, you know, we have to behave like this because competitors, the Chinese are very aggressive. Americans are selling very good products. We can't afford to stay in that market if we do not behave like this. And they also added, if the Supreme Court refuses our argument, this would be a kind of hindrance to the possibility of the Italian companies to go abroad and to conquer new markets. So please share our view because we are doing what we do also in interest of the country. Hmm. And in this respect, the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, we have to draw a distinction. If this were a case involving European subsidiaries, not American, not Canadian, but Europeans, well, this would be a ground. This would be a good argument because, you know, in Europe, Mimi, we have European principles, including freedom of establishment. And indeed, in many respects, transferpricing, the TP regulations, can be considered a kind of hindrance to the freedom of establishment. But the Supreme Court added, this is not a European case. This is a transoceanic case. This is American. And you do not qualify for that extra protection granted by European Union law. That's the end of the game. That's so interesting. I mean, it clearly is focused on sort of that strategic business aspect, right? Yeah. And yeah. sort of relying on this one component of EU tax mm -hmm. law or that EU framework. But I mean, clearly the company's sort of business rationalization, the strategy, all of that has to be considered in the context of the entire transfer pricing policy. Yes, indeed. Everything should be considered. Anything has been apparently considered in this case. There is also another element which is important that I forgot to mention you and your friends and our friends that are listening to us, the burden of the proof. Who mm. is supposed to, to give evidence about what during this kind of audit? Well, this is another very interesting aspect of this decision because they say, the, the Italian Supreme Court says that it is not a duty of the Italian tax administration to bring evidence about the fact that the amount of the royalty is not consistent with arm's length value. The only burden on the shoulder of the tax administration, if you can say that, is to demonstrate and to show to the court that there is some sort of discrepancy. There is the Italian word that they use here is apparentemente in English sounds like apparently. If apparently the amount of royalty apparently is different from, well, the arm's length value, that's enough for the tax administration. Then the burden of the proof is on the taxpayer. So it's the multinational that has to demonstrate that the price they agreed on for the trademark, for the know-how, for the well, whatever it is, is the arm's length one. But I think that part of this is the taxpayer had a royalty in place. They were charging for use of IP, but part of the challenge is, is this notion of have you revisited what that royalty is and the value of that IP to this particular market? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Over yeah, a period they, of time? Yeah, you have to consider the period of time, the, the many years. I read all the decision of the court, but I, I couldn't find how long the VBAC had this policy in terms of royalty. Probably mm-hmm. was some years, definitely more than three, more than, than three years. And of course, time was also considered. But the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Italian Revenue Agency? Yes, indeed, 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 <laughs> indeed. That's really quite shocking in many, in many respects. I couldn't see the numbers here, so I couldn't see the discrepancy between the price they agreed on and the arm's length value for that royalty. But, but to me, as a lawyer, as an academic, one of the most, well, perhaps the most significant element of this case is that it is the multinational, it is the, the taxpayer, which has demonstrated that what you're doing is right, is sound. While normally in this country, I was used to read cases where tax administration was used to show and to bring evidence about what is the mm-hmm. arm's length value for something. If I sell you something for that's $10 maybe, and the tax administration say, consider that $10 is not enough, then it should be on their shoulder to demonstrate that the fair price is 20, 30, well, you name it. Not right. on me to show and right. understand, but, but anyway. Well, but I think that they shift that burden of proof with the documentation requirements ultimately, right? To say, Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer, prove to me that the $10 is arm's length first. And if you can't do that, I'm going to prove to you why it's not. Yeah, probably this is what happened behind the curtains. Yeah. <laughs> so let's recap. The tax authority in this situation clearly felt that the company's royalty charges was too low. Royalties charged to countries that are across the ocean, like the U.S. and Canada. And the Mm -hmm. taxpayer essentially fought back, saying that the lower price or lower royalties was necessary to maintain competitiveness jurisdictions, like in the U.S. and China. And they were trying to rely on this EU free market competition framework, right? Yeah. But unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Italian tax revenue, which really means that no matter what type of transfer pricing policy that's in place, number one, the burden of proof still remains with the taxpayer. And the only way to mitigate that is through documentation. And clearly, the arm's length principle has to be taken into consideration given market conditions. And you need to focus on explaining your business strategies, which have to respect the current market conditions and, and of course, this concept of, of time, right? Because business strategies will evolve over a period of time. Yes, Mimi, you're absolutely, absolutely right. I could say that the transfer pricing battles in Italy are fought before you go to the court. With the <laughs> yeah. documentation, the papers, all the evidence you can collect and keep and gather. In this country, we are used to say that if you go to the court, you're 50%, you're you already lost. <laughs> Something <laughs> went wrong somewhere. Yes, yes. I kind of feel the same way, right? If it's going to court, you've already lost along uh, the way. <laughs> so let's break down the second case. So this was ruled in decision 8176, which is in March, 2021. Tell us a little bit about this case. Who was the taxpayer and what are the transfer pricing issues at hand in this particular case? Uh, yes, Mimi, you're right. This is the Santini case and it's 100% 
Italian case in many respects. Why is that? Well, the uh, situation is pretty much as follows. We have here a, a company which is active in trade of vegetables and, and fruit, essentially. And it is a domestic and national case because we are now considering two companies belonging to the same family, by the way, to the same family in Italy doing business. So essentially, long story made short, one company was selling fruits and vegetables apparently to the other company and the other company was selling them on the open market. Both resident here, therefore, in the peninsula. So what was the problem? The problem was that uh, it seems that the fruit was sold from the first company to the second to the very high price and from the second to the market at a very apparent to very low price. And so the tax administration came in and they say, oh, well, we have a, a, some sort of transfer pricing issue here because the, the first company is not behaving according to the market and they are supposed to to adjust their pricing policy in order to make the second company profitable too. But the point here, Mimi, is that you mentioned this case as a transfer pricing case. Okay. In, in substance, it is because we are talking about prices we are talking about the need for prices to be adjusted for tax purposes according to the arm's length. But again, here comes the Italian <laughs> and me. If we look at this situation in a very formal perspective, this is not a transfer pricing. And why is that? The reason is very simple. From 2015, the Italian parliament has passed a law law passed by the parliament prohibiting, forbidding the application of transfer pricing regulation to the internal market transaction. So under the law, under the law, the, the Italian tax inspector, the Italian well revenue service, the Italian tax inspectors must not audit intra-country transaction according to transfer pricing regulations. So why are we here talking about this? Exactly. Because, Wait, how does this come out to be then? Yeah, that form and substance. So what did the tax inspector do in, in my country? They say, okay, okay, we abide by the law, of course. So we are not using transfer pricing regulations. But what have we got here? We got a business behavior. We have a, a company which is not behaving like it is supposed to. And what is the normal behavior of a company? Well, to, to maximize profits. That is the behavior that you can expect from every business all around the world. Make as much money as possible in your everyday activity. But apparently here, we are a company which is diverging from this idea, from this principle. And is this tolerable for tax purposes? Is there a reason why they are behaving like this other than tax reasons? There is not. This is the answer. And therefore, we as a tax administration can disregard this transaction or we can adjust the amount of the prices up to a level which is consistent with the expected profits. It's very Byzantine, it's very complicated, 
but they say essential in a nutshell, in a long story made short. If you are selling goods for a price which is lower than the price you are supposed to in order to make reasonable profits, well, probably you are doing that for tax reasons. Probably your reason for selling products at a very low price is justified for tax reasons. And therefore, we as tax inspector can audit you and adjust your profits up to a level that we would expect from you. Wow. You know, it's interesting because there's there's this presumption of intent here, right? The, the intention to hide tax positions, even on a domestic basis. There is not evidence here. There are a lot of leads, I would say. Right. Lead in the sense that we are talking about two companies, uh, which are, well, part of the same group. Check. These two companies belong to the very same family, fathers, sons, you know, the big Italian family. Check. Then you have one of these two companies, which is like, how to say that, misbehaving in many respects, <laughs> misbehaving. Check, you have this. And at the end of the day, you have one plus two plus three. At the end of the day, you have a tax return or a tax liability, which is lower than the expected one. Check. If all these leads taken together would bring the tax administration to this conclusion. Right. But given the 2015 legal parliament law that was passed, right, forbidding the transfer pricing rules to be enforced for these internal market transactions, what does this say about the Italian tax authorities' authority or or level of power over multinationals, even operating on a domestic basis? Well, the power of the tax administration in Italy, our revenue service is in many respects immense immense. And you have, I think, Mimi, you have evidence of the power also in cases like this. When the Italian parliament in 2015 introduced that specific provision preventing the revenue service from behaving in this way, the reason was that cases like this one, like this Santini, were very, very frequent in Italy. They intervened a lot in many situations, in many scenarios, in many cases. They always said, well, the, the average businessman would not behave like that. The, the average corporation would do like this and not that, and so on and so forth. And, and stakeholders in this country, the Association of Trade Unions and Industrials, they lobbied in the parliament saying, please end this game. Because this brings a lot of uncertainty in, in the, the tax system. We cannot afford to litigate cases and cases where tax inspectors are actually playing the role of the entrepreneur. Because, you know, maybe I've never been an entrepreneur in my entire life, but I, I, I believe this is not an easy job. <laughs> and, and, and in this country, you know, you have, in the past, you, you were used to have judges and tax inspectors behaving like if they were entrepreneurs. If I were you, I wouldn't sell goods at that price if, well, the average man wouldn't behave in that way. But, you know, that was really intolerable in many respects. So in 2015, end of the game. We passed a law, TP, transfer pricing, the way we understand it, the way we, you, Mimi, and I understand it was just over in 
Italy to Italy transaction. Transfer pricing, according to Italian tax law, is applicable only to transaction business combinations which are from Italy to abroad or vice versa. Period. Apparently, the story is not over because the, the, the Italian tax administration said, okay, we won't call it transfer pricing. We, we'll we, we, we shall call else. it like <laughs> sound business purpose, yes. sound business purpose, you know, that, that clauses that are sometimes used in common law too, but here sometimes much more. And at the end of the game, at the end of the story, the situation here is, is that we are back to square one in many wow. respects. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's recap here. In this second case, we have two related parties that are both domestically situated in Italy. One sold products to the other, and then the other resold those products at a loss, right? Resulting in a negative margin. And exactly. even though the transfer pricing rules are not applicable to domestic transactions, Right. Apparently, based on this case, the Italian tax authority was able to apply a different set of rules, deeming this practice uneconomical or, or not based on business purpose, right? Essentially, I think that it goes to show the power of the tax authority in Italy and the sensitivity that they have with regard to these intercompany dealings, regardless of whether or not it's just domestic or on a forward basis. Yes, maybe. I, however, I have to confess I missed one point about this case. There's a happy ending here, happy ending. I mean, the Supreme oh, Court good. said, yeah. <laughs> but, but you know, so even here, so the Supreme Court said, well, you can't do that. Honestly, you, you can't. Here in this case, taxpayer won, clearly won it. So there is a happy ending. However, from my point of view, it's curious that we still have to litigate cases like this. I think that this is very important for people that are listening to us. In this country, unfortunately, you have to litigate cases up to the Supreme Court, even if at the very beginning, at least for me, for academics, for, for people in, in taxation, it is crystal clear that these audits are not acceptable anymore. Right, right. But in some ways, perhaps the Italian tax authority would go in and litigate these cases such that sort of setting a precedent for other taxpayers that they may want to audit and say, hey, if you don't want to go to litigation, just, yeah. just yeah. fix this, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a strategy. That's You, you got the point. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe you're, you're absolutely right. But I'm a professor, so I'm an academic. I'm not in practice. So to, to me, and I'm an Italian taxpayer, I'm an Italian taxpayer. So I see a huge waste of money. Yes. In cases like this, because that, all these right. people, the justices, the tax inspectors, the clerks, and for three degrees, though so they have first degree, second degree, and the third are all paid by, by us. And I think we, we can be better than that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what can taxpayers and multinationals take away from these different and, of course, teachable cases? What, what should they learn from this? Well, I would say that they can learn a, a lot from, from the first case, uh, maybe, and also from the second, uh, that it is important to consider that the approach of the tax administration is different depending on the residence of the foreign company, holding or subsidiary, doesn't matter. If the foreign company is resident in the EU, in the European Union, as I told you, the freedom of establishment, the European Union law is another shield 
that you can use to, to protect mm -hmm. yourself, to protect, to defend your business. You know, the, the freedom of establishment, Mimi, is very similar to the commerce clause that you have in the United States. It works very closely to that if I consider the American constitutional law. So, mm -hmm. so if I were in the shoes of a foreign investor, I would try and invest in this country with a subsidiary or whatever. Well, perhaps one of the strategies to consider is not to come directly in Italy, but, but to have a <laughs> subholding somewhere like in the Netherlands, in France, in Germany, wherever, and then here. And then, yeah, because if you choose to, to, to come to Italy through, through the back door, the Netherlands, yes, or France yes. or whatever. Then, then you have some EU exactly, some extra legal protection. Really, that's that's, right. this is the first teaching. And the second lesson, I'd say, is that, well, again, I don't know the background of the case, but, but Italy offers a remarkable number of rulings or moments or occasions where taxpayers can talk to the tax administration and in some ways uh, to negotiate with tax administration their business strategy and their investment. We have the APA like in America, like in all the countries now, like in all the OECD countries. So the, the second lesson would be to, to make the most of that opportunity to have the advanced pricing agreement as much as possible and to anticipate with the Italian tax administration, all the, the issues, all the maybe necessities that you may have in your, in your strategy. And would your advice for taxpayers potentially change if you were talking to a taxpayer that would be deemed to be operating in the digital economy, more of your Googles and your Apples, Netflix, right? Well, in the case of digital economy, I would say, well, Italy has... But not only Italy, but also France, you know, and other European countries have been very aggressive, active. I would say. Mm -hmm. active. Yeah, active. It's more <laughs> politically correct. Active. I like it more. I'm active in this. And also because maybe, you know, you should not underestimate the fact that most of the European countries now, and Italy in particular, have serious budget constraint. Yes. So they are trying to find money wherever wherever is possible. So if I were in, in an American business, not, not a huge multinational, but also medium-sized company engaged in digital economy, I would be very careful, but very, very careful because, you know, digital economy is, is a field where Italian tax administration, French tax administration are looking very carefully at in the attempt to raise money, which is yes. not appropriate in my view, but you know, this is the, the historical moment we are living in. Exactly. And especially after COVID-19 and, and sort of this, this pause, if you will, or the impact to the overall tax framework. I mean, over the next year, you think tax scrutiny is going to continue to increase in Italy? In, you mean you mean the level of taxation? Well, and audits and and sort of the risk profile. Yeah, I fear yes. I fear that's going to be the case. Uh, there were people that tried to like like in, in America. Apparently, your new administration, the Biden administration, has been with our, I mean, if I have to look at the American administration with European eyes, has been very, very bold in saying that we are going to raise taxes, we are going to ask people to pay more, we are going to ask some people, let me more correct, to pay more, and, and, yes. and, and then so on. Well, we are talking about perhaps inheritance taxation, wealth taxes. Apparently, you are also rediscussing capital gains taxation. And 
Italy, there are people that try to, well, put on the table the necessity to increase inheritance taxation, to rediscuss, I'm not talking about increasing, but rediscuss wealth taxation. But the, the, the reaction by the majority of the political parties in, in Italy has been no way. No, we are not going to raise taxes. We are not going to, to tax wealth and so on. And, and you know, but, but still we have to find money because we have the European constraint. We have budget regulation to abide by. And I fear that in the next month, the tax administration shall be even more aggressive than it was in the past. Interesting. And last question from my side. I'm curious, the Italian resident or, or persona, how do Italians feel about the concept of taxation? Is it a culture that appreciates and understands where the tax dollars are going and, and they feel as if they want to contribute back to society? Or what do you think the general sentiment is on that? Uh, oh, Mimi, this is a $1 million question. Is, uh, <laughs> is I, this I too think, difficult? Do we yeah, need to have a new podcast uh, for this? There, <laughs> yeah, special issue of your podcast <laughs> about this. Now, long story made sure. Well, I- Italy is apparently or well known for the attitude of the people here to avoid taxes, if not evade taxes. And apparently numbers are going in that direction. But I think that the situation here is is, is more complicated than that. And probably tax lawyers are not um, the best social scientists to understand the, the picture, which is much broader. If Italians are not really in love with paying taxes. It's not because they don't like to pay, but mm-hmm. because we have a kind of a general lack of trust right. on, on the government. And these right. date backs, not back in years, but probably in decades, if not in centuries. It's very, I mean, it's it's fascinating topic, you know, Mimi, but, but really goes beyond my capacity. <laughs> no, I, I I appreciate your perspective on that, though. Generally, P- Italians are people that we don't create any in- inconveniences, but let, uh, let us do our job. We don't ask anything. <laughs> don't ask anything. Yes. That, that's the point. So, and if taxes are too high, we'll say, well... We, we don't complain about the poor quality of the services, of the state services. That's it. It's part of the game. But don't ask to pay more. That, right. That's a trick. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, based on what we've been talking about, clearly the Italian Revenue Agency is focused on, on transfer pricing and taxation and shoring up any deficits as a result of the pandemic over the last year. The new transfer pricing documentation requirements and regulations issued at the end of last year are clearly indicative of this type of precedence. A lot of work has to be done from a multinational perspective. And clearly these Italian Supreme Court cases show us there are wrinkles in the current policies and it's important for multinationals to review these current cases and understand them better to make sure that they can react or or proactively take those measures to mitigate the risk for their own particular organization. Marco, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm looking forward to the next time we speak. (laughs) Pleasure was mine, Amy. Thank you very much for your hospitality. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. 
So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. Welcome back, everyone. Now time comes for my favorite part of the show, and that's our rapid-fire round of more personal questions. Sometimes transfer pricing works into it, but it's more about getting to know our guest, and our guest today is University of Ferrara Professor Marco Greggi. We call this round what we want to know, and always question one in this rapid-fire round, Professor, is are you ready? I'm ready. Ready to go. Excellent. Question number two. What's your favorite area of Italy and why? Uh, well, the, the region I live in, Emilia-Romagna. I was born here, was raised here, and I just love it. That sounds beautiful. What's your go-to pump-up song? My goodness, I was born in 1973, and I have to confess to you that I really love Madonna. <laughs> all, the, all the songs by Madonna. Sir, sir, uh, you're going to have to excuse me. I, I know Madonna's Catholic, but there is no need to confess loving Madonna here. <laughs> that is without sin. Anyway, what's a principle of tax that you apply to your everyday life? Transparency as much as possible. If you are transparent, if you full disclose everything and anything, you have no problem. Amen. Transparency. How do you want your students to remember you? I don't want them to remember me. I'm always there. My door is always open. So I always say to my, I always tell to my alumni, you know where I live. If you want to meet me, to talk to me, just to drink some coffee, come and pay a visit. You don't need to remember. I'm there. And we want to thank you, Professor Greggi, for being on the program this week, as well as Mimi. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, along with Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll see each other very soon. Until then, we'll catch everyone next week. <laughs>